Well, good morning, everybody. I hope that you are well. I am excited for today's message, but I need to begin today's message in an unconventional place. I'm going to need you to share with somebody next to you to not just keep this conviction to yourself. I have a very important, deep, philosophical, theological, important question for you to answer right at the outset today. What is the best Star Wars movie in your opinion? Turn to somebody next to you and answer that question. I imagine if, if this room is anything like what the polls say online, your favorite Star Wars movie is this movie, The Empire Strikes Back. How many of you said that that was your favorite Star Wars movie? A bunch of you. Okay, you would be wrong. The best Star Wars movie is this movie. It is Rogue One. Anybody else agree? Nobody here in the sanctuary. That's okay, I have the microphone, and the guy running camera agrees with me, and that's all that matters, because we'll keep things rolling. The reason I think that this is the best Star Wars movie is because it is one of those movies that seems to come out of nowhere. Sandwiched in between episodes one, two, and three, which are all about the rise and then the fall of Anakin Skywalker, and then before episodes chronologically four, five, and six, which is about the rise of Luke Skywalker and them being able to save the universe once again, because that happens over and over and over again in Star Wars. And so what happens in Rogue One is, is that a lot of the times when you're watching a Star Wars movie with all the fancy special effects and the lightsabers and all the cool things that are going on, you can forget what the real mission is. That you can get caught up in all of the coolness of these battles in space and forget what is it that we're fighting for? What is it that we're fighting against? And the way that you see that best is by this story that's kind of an in-between story. And what we're about to experience in Scripture is one of my favorite parts of the New Testament for the very same reason. For you see, when you look at the New Testament, there are two giants in the New Testament, and for very good reason. There's Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and then you have the Apostle Paul, where he takes the good news of Jesus and his kingdom and takes it all over the world. And yet there's a little bit of in-between time at the birth of the early church. And there is an unlikely character who reminds us what this mission is all about. And his name is Stephen, and we're going to look at his story. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to want to see, we're going to flip through the Bible a lot today and see a variety of different things. We're going to walk through part of this verse by verse, and then we'll skip through and see what God does in the life of Stephen, how he helps the church to stay true to its mission, and how we can stay true in our in-between times to the mission that God has given to us. Let me remind you while you're flipping to the book of Acts chapter six that we're in the midst of our quest journey. 
And in the New Testament, on the right-hand column there, we've been talking about the ministry of Jesus. Then we were talking about Jesus as Messiah. And today, as we get into October, we're talking about the mission of the church. So we're talking about the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul as things spread all over the Roman Empire at the time and into our lives and world as well. And so we're going to be looking verse by verse, starting in chapter 6. Let's begin with the first verse. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Right here at the outset, what you see is in the midst of this, there is a conflict. There's a conflict between two different groups of people. We see these, they are the Hellenistic Jews versus the Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews are the Jews that are from Israel. The Hellenistic Jews are from the Greek-speaking surrounding world. There were a lot more Hellenistic Jews than there were actually at that time Jews in Israel. The Jews that were spread in the diaspora all over the place vastly dwarfed the number who were in Israel themselves. But you can imagine the tension, right? You can imagine of we're the true Jews because we are still in Israel and we're connected to the temple that's right here versus the Jews that are all over the place. And one group of Jews particularly spoke Hebrew and one group of Jews particularly spoke Greek, so they're divided by different languages, different customs, different ethnicities being in from different places. And what happens in the midst of this racial and cultural and this geographic tension is what happens in the midst of almost all of these type of tensions. What gets lost is the poor, the widows, the orphans, And so in the midst of all of this tension, there is this neglect of the women in that society who were vulnerable. One of the things I love about the book of Acts, one of the things that is amazing to me that gives the Bible just so much of its its realness, that this is not just propaganda, is that as we read in the book of Acts, it is not one glorified victory and victory and victory to another. No, the Bible does not hide its words. For what we've seen already in these first couple of chapters of the book of Acts is, is, is distraction and corruption and all kinds of persecution. And what we see in this particular passage Right at the outset, there are these two different groups. They're going back and forth against one another, and there is division in this Judaism and in the church as a result. And so let's keep reading in verse 2. And so the 12, this means the 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples together, all the students together of Jesus, and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. What we have here in this moment is that we have widows that are being overlooked and at the same time, they don't want to neglect the core of the ministry of what they're supposed to do. So earlier this summer, I was um, on a trip that we were leading with a group of people from this church, and then a handful of us went on a boat in the Mediterranean Ocean. This was a moment where you didn't need to pray for me because I was doing just fine. 
And so we're on a small boat in the Mediterranean Ocean, and I haven't spent a whole lot of times on boats except for on Lake Waco in Central Texas, and you just need to know the waves aren't that big in Central Texas. And so we're on this boat, and all of a sudden, a big wave just kind of comes out of nowhere and just kind of knocks the boat a little bit. And I'm kind of just walking confidently along the edge of the boat, and I almost fall over, okay? And so somebody comes over to me and puts their hand on my, uh, their hand on my arm and says, Pastor, three legs are sea legs. Say that with me. Three legs are sea legs. For you see... What is happening when you're walking on a boat? Two legs are not enough. You need that third anchor in order to make sure that you're secure. And this is a great analogy and reminder for me for how as the early church expanded, it was not one thing, it was not two things, but there were multiple things, three things that really needed to hold together in the early church and for us to be stable and to be secure in the mission that God has given to us. And the three legs of what was going on in the early church was both word and prayer as well as service. And so what's happening here for the disciples, there's this push and this pull. They could have overcorrected. And it's like, oh, you're right. These people are being neglected. Let's stop doing this stuff. We're doing maybe too much of this stuff. Or maybe we're doing too much of this stuff. And let's do more of this stuff. No, 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 you need all three of those anchor points in order for the church to be the church. And so let's see how the story continues. Brothers and sisters, these are the apostles speaking, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer into the ministry of the word. So here's what happens here. Don't miss this. You have the 12 apostles. And the reason there are the 12 original disciples that become apostles is that they are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Because what Jesus is doing in his ministry is he is renewing and redeeming the mission of what Israel was always called to be and to do. But you see, the redemption of Israel was never just for the sake of Israel. The redemption of Israel was always for the sake of the world. And so while there's just the 12 of them, while they're kind of holding the ministry together, that ministry is only going to go so far. And so what they do in this moment is they empower seven. First 12, then there's seven. Why seven? How many days were there in creation? That's not a trick question. You can respond to that. Seven days in creation. In other words, what is happening here is that we are seeing them recover the true mission of what Israel is supposed to be and that it starts here, but it was always meant to go out into the world. This was for the sake of renewing and redeeming all of creation. And the way even in the midst of the strife and the tension of what was happening between the Greeks and the Jews in terms of their back and forth is that they knew that they were a part of one family. Did you notice how the apostles refer to all of the people, whether they were Greek-speaking or Hebrew-speaking, they called them brothers and sisters. One of the things that gets so easily lost in their day as well as ours is that if we are seeing things right with the image of God, we are all a part of one 
family. Let's continue reading in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Okay, so what's happening here is maybe my favorite part of the crux of the text. And let me let you wrestle with this just for a little bit by asking you, what are you filled with? What are you filled with? If your life was a container and you were looking at everything that was in your life, what would be in that container of your life? Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this. Have you been following the, the great end of baseball on multiple fronts? First of all, let's talk about our Braves, right? Went in two against the Mets. Can I have an amen? Yeah. Are we pulling for a third tonight? Yeah. So I'm talking about an epic comeback, 10 and a half down. Does this have anything to do with the message? I just wanted to bring that in somehow. <laughs> but, in, but in baseball this year, there's been another great thing to watch, and that is watching Aaron Judge um, tie Roger Maris's home run record. You've been tracking along with this and following along and every single night there's all kinds of people gathered and they're all waiting and they want to be there for that history and they want to be there and and man if you're in the outfield wouldn't the greatest dream of all be for you to go to the game and for you to be able to catch the baseball where Aaron Judge finally beats Roger Maris's record? How exciting would that be? Well, there was a moment in the game where they were playing against the Blue Jays where Aaron Judge is up to bat. He's been, what was it been, like a seven-game, eight-game drought. They keep walking him. They're not really pitching to him. And then finally, Aaron Judge connects with one, and that ball is going and soaring, and it's heading towards the outfield. And there is a guy who is there, and he's in a Blue Jays jersey because this is where the game is, and he's got his glove with him. And that ball comes, and it hits his glove, and then it falls over and falls like 30 or 40 feet down below, below him. This was his facial reaction when that happened. <laughs> what is he filled with in this moment? Regret, disappointment, shame. His life is a container and it is filled with something. When you see this face next on the screen, what do you think this person's filled with right now? Anger, ambition, conquest, destruction. Contrast that with this image here. If her life was a container, what is her life filled with? Love, service, care, dedication to the poor. Your life is a container. The question is, what does it contain? You were filled with something. And so the remarkable thing about the book of Acts in general, but specifically this in-between time, in-between Jesus, in-between Paul and the giants, over and over again, the repetition is, is that, what are we filled with? What are we filled with? And in verses three and in five and in eight, when we get to this point of them choosing these leaders to help us to not neglect those who are overlooked, we see them being full of things like wisdom and full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace and full of power. 
your life can, can be a container where God's own spirit lives within you and me. What are you filled with? And so you and I are the kind of people that in the midst of what is overlooked and what is neglected in today's world, do you think that he might choose even people like us to be filled with his presence and to further the mission? I don't want you to miss some of the amazing things that's easy for us to miss in our English translations when we're just kind of reading through the Bible and especially when we get to, to, to just kind of to names. Stephen is the first one who is chosen and Stephen is the one whose name it, it means to encircle as you would with a wreath. It's a, a bringing together kind of name. Prochorus is a name. Do you know what it means to procure something? It means that you're the person who goes to get something. Uh, Prochorus is probably the Greek version of Uber Eats. They're the people that go and get stuff for you. That's not actually what Prochorus was. Did you know that Prochorus was probably named because he was a part of an enslaved family? That he was the one who would go and get stuff because that's what he had to do? And then Nicholas is two Greek words together, Nike meaning victory, you're familiar with that, and Laos meaning the people, victory for God's people, probably named for somebody whose family was a part of great military conquest. And so here you have these different people who are picked, but what do they all have in common? They all have Greek-speaking names. And so the 11, now 12 apostles, once they add Matthias, the 12 apostles who are those who are the ones who are from Israel, primarily Hebrew-speaking, and the Greek-speaking part of the church is being neglected, and what do they do? They choose this person and that person and that person and that person, and they make sure that those are the kind of people who are containers who are filled with God's spirit and wisdom and grace and devotion and all of these different things, and what do they do? They do not hoard the ministry. They do not hold on to the ministry. They give the ministry away. My friends, the biggest impediment to the furthering of God's mission and the church in the world today is that we in the church hang on to ministry instead of giving it away. These are our holy orders. This is what God has called us to be and to do. And if you think ministry is about just coming to church and you expect us as pastors that we're the ones who do the work of the ministry, and it's your job to just come and listen. I'm telling you, you've got this whole thing upside down, inside out, and backwards. That regardless of whatever your name is, we are called to give that away to you, and it will take different kinds of people to reach different kinds of people in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading in the story, verse 6. The apostles presented these men or these men, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them just as we did last week with our elders. And so the word of God does what? When you give the ministry away and you have a three-legged gospel, it will spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of what? Priests became obedient to the faith. 
all of Israel was called and trained to be a kingdom of priests. Do you know what the primary job description of the priest was? Yeah, it was to take care of the rites in the temple. Do you know what the primary original job description of a priest was in the Old Testament? To help to take care of the poor. And here's what's interesting. When the priests of Israel start to see these Greek-speaking people taking care of the poor, that's what brings the Hebrew-speaking people into the faith of Jesus as the Messiah. And you might think that that means, oh, isn't that wonderful that they lived happily ever after? They chose these people. It started to grow and victory for the church. That's not how it went. Because if you look with me at the continuation of the story, look, look at the beginning of chapter 7 here. We're not going to read all of chapter 7. I just want you to notice this because eventually, uh, here, the second part of chapter 6, they, they, uh, they seize Stephen, they capture him. And then in chapter 7, uh, they, they give the speech. This is the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. Longer than the speech that Peter gave, longer than the speech that we have recorded of Paul is the speech and the sermon of Stephen in this moment. And then towards the end of that, there is Stephen being stoned and in the midst of him being murdered for what he believes is an image of Jesus up in heaven standing. What does that mean? Let me read it for you. This is Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 58. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, those were the religious leaders, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at Stephen, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, what? standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named whom? The baton officially in the story gets passed to the story of Saul who becomes the apostle Paul. This is the only time in the scriptures of the risen and reigning Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. All the other references are of Jesus what? Sitting. World Communion Sunday in one of my previous congregations Pastors and elders had a tradition. It's a smaller congregation where we would go visit everybody in a nursing home and everybody who was confined to their home to bring them communion on World Communion Sunday. And I went to the home of this one man who had been a member of the church for over 50 years. And when I came into the living room, he was wearing an oxygen mask connected to the tank. And then he was in a chair, and when I came in, he immediately began to try to stand up. And it was a struggle. And watching him struggle, I said, it's okay. You, you don't have to stand up. Just, just remain seated. And he pushed my hand away, and he said, no, I will stand. 
And with great struggle, he stood and he shook my hand and then he sat back down. And he said, when I was a boy, I was taught that every time the pastor came into the room, you were supposed to stand. Not because they were perfect, not because of who they were, but because of what they represented. And for as long as I live, I'll stand when my pastor walks in the room. He reminded me of the high and holy calling of what the church is and its mission. And so my friends, in the midst of an in-between story, a story in which we're reminded of what our mission really is, in an in-between times between the giants of Jesus and Paul, there was a time when they took the holy orders of what was given to them at the early church. And in this in-between story, as a man who was known for bringing people together, Jesus stood. And I believe that Jesus still stands at the right hand of the Father every time the poor get cared for. I believe that Jesus still stands at the right hand of the Father every time we break down a barrier between different groups or cultures or conflicts. I believe Jesus stands every time we are willing to be generous and to live out the call. I believe that Jesus stands when we are willing to not neglect the prayer and our relationship with God and the truth of the word of God. I believe that Jesus will stand when we stand true to the promises that he has entrusted to us when we will preach that good news. And I believe that Jesus will remain standing even in the midst of persecution. For in the world right now on this day, there are people who are suffering for the faith that you and I so easily come to this sanctuary and online to be able to receive. I want you to think for a moment about Stephen entering into God's presence. And for the first time in recorded history to our knowledge, there is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth rising to his feet. Standing for what he stood for. It is in the in-between time that you and I tend to live. And so let us not lose the mission. And so let us pray. Our loving God and Father, we're so grateful for the three-legged nature of the gospel and how you have given to us your word. You have enabled us to, to be with you in prayer and you have called us to service. And how the church will grow when we give ourselves away. And so will you fill each and every one of us with the wisdom and grace and devotion and, and most of all with your own spirit. Help us to not be so results-oriented that it's about happily ever after, but it's about what happens as we look towards heaven and have a vision of you standing to cheer us on for what could be true in our moment in time. And so God, in a time when it is so easy 
for the church to be seen as corruption and distraction and even in the midst of persecution and division, will you give us back our mission? And we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.